You can support The Historian's podcast by donating to our fund campaign. Click the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. I'm Ed Richardson, and I'm the author of The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and The Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria. A very unlikely story of someone called Charles Masson, British deserter, traveler, wanderer, fake doctor, fake pilgrim, fake Afghan prince, ended up making one of the most remarkable discoveries in the history of archaeology. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Edmund Richardson joins us from England to discuss his book, as he said, The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria. It's published here in America by St. Martin's Press. Edmund Richardson is a classics professor at Durham University in the UK. He published the book Classical Victorians back in 2013 and was named one of the BBC New Generation Thinkers in 2016. As you were telling us, the King's Shadow tells the story of Charles Masson, uh, M-A-S-S-O-N, who was a deserter from the East India Company's British Army, who in the 1830s discovered a wealth of history in Afghanistan. A lot of uh, angles to this story, twists and turns. But let's uh, start with uh, Charles Masson. Who was he? When did he live? And so forth. As you say, Bob, it's a story that is literally all twists and turns. Um, But um, Charles Masson was born James Lewis, an ordinary working-class Londoner, um, grew up at the turn of the 19th century um, in one of the most um, unpleasant and squalid parts of London. Um, and that is saying something, because London at the time was one of the most unpleasant and squalid places <laughs> in the world. Um, he saw very little that was good for him um, in this life, and he decided to enlist in the army of the British East India Company, hoping to you know, make his fortune, have a better life, all that kind of thing. What he actually ha- finds happening is that he gets shipped out to India, spends um, the best part of a decade marching up and down India, sweating, um, enforcing British imperial rule, um, and having very little good happen to him. So finally, something snaps, and um, he sets out, um, deserts from his regiment, and sets out to make a name for himself, to make his fortune. Of course, the British do not take kindly to this, and... He is very quickly um, hunted um, across India, and indeed the British would not stop hunting him for years to come afterwards. I mean, I feel so, in a sense, lost in some of this, in that I've heard of the East India Company, but it sounds like, I mean, what was that? I mean, what was the East India Company of Great Britain? It's a wonderfully weird quirk of history, and also a horrific quirk of history. But the East India Company was essentially a private corporation, um, the first real multinational, if you like. Um, and it was basically chartered to trade with between India, um, the East, and Britain. And they started out with a few coastal trading posts, and they gradually bullied and blackmailed and murdered and campaigned and worked their way inland until by the early 19th century, the 1820s and 1830s, which is where we are in the story, the East India Company, this one private corporation which is run out of a 
little squalid office building in London is the ruler of tens of millions of people. It's the ruler of much of the Indian subcontinent. Um, it's a story that um, William Dalrymple has recently told wonderfully in his book, The Anarchy, that um, the East India Company is still not really a part of British government. Um, and at the time, much of the British Empire is administered by this corporation, but a corporation that has the power of life and death, that has a gigantic private army, that has huge numbers of spies, and that is able to topple rulers um, basically at the stroke of a pen. Now, for Charles Masson, I mean, that wasn't his real name, right? What was his real name? His real name was James Lewis, and he takes on the name Charles Masson um, soon after he deserts from the British East India Company. He quickly realizes that the East India Company are on the hunt for him, and he adopts um, the alias Charles Masson. Um, he actually does this when he's confronted by an American, um, someone called Josiah Harlan, who was sort of working in a semi-detached way for pretty much everyone, um, all the rulers, all the empires, all the power bases, and most importantly for himself. Uh, but Harlan had been told about this deserter called James Lewis and had been asked to keep an eye out for him. And uh, when he is confronted by Harlan, um, Lewis realizes that he needs a good alias, so he takes out on the name Charles Masson. Now, the important thing, I guess, the thing that he discovered uh, is in Afghanistan, if I'm uh, correct there. How did he get to or why did he go to Afghanistan, what we call Afghanistan? It's not the obvious place to go, is it? If you're on the run from Britain and you basically made it to the borders of British control, you think we'd be striking out maybe for London, maybe for America, maybe for somewhere you could lie low and build a life for yourself. But instead, Masson heads for Afghanistan. And he seems to do this because he's simply fallen in love with a story. And that story is the story of Alexander the Great, as the, the boy from the hills of Greece who became ruler of much of the known world by his mid-twenties. Alexander founded a string of cities across his empire, across much of the then known world. He named them all for himself. He named them all Alexander. Alexandria. So everyone knows the Alexandria in Egypt, but there's dozens more Alexandrias um, stretching across Persia, across Asia Minor, across um, you know, Central Asia, down into modern-day Pakistan, Afghanistan. And Masson falls in love, falls for Alexander's story, and he wants to try to tell the story himself try to tell it in a way no, no one ever has before. And he realizes that the one thing, the one advantage he has over everyone else is that he's actually on the spot. No one who's written about Alexandria, so, uh, sorry, Alexander, excuse me, for, for thousands of years has ever actually visited the sites of his campaigns. Um, people in Britain at the time, historians in Britain, have never set foot in Afghanistan. There's only a couple of British people who have set foot in Afghanistan in centuries. Even the ancient Greek and Roman historians whom people used to try to tell Alexander's story at the time, they'd never set foot in Afghanistan either. Um, they were writing hundreds of years after the event. So Masson is actually on the spot, and he has 
he feels like he has this opportunity which no one else has had for centuries, maybe for over 2,000 years, of actually following in Alexander's footsteps, actually finding some traces of his expedition, maybe even finding one of his lost cities, one of the lost Alexandrians. So he heads to Afghanistan on foot, alone, begging by the side of the road, um, dependent on the kindness of strangers to survive, dressed in rags, robbed again and again and again, freezing to death almost, starving to death almost, robbed again, but keeping going, fueled by this dream, by this story um, that he hopes to tell. Did Alexander himself actually ever get to Afghanistan, or was that just something he, he sent an army to? Alexander himself got to Afghanistan. He was very characteristically someone who always led his armies from the front. So he was always at the head of his, they were called the companion cavalry, basically, his, his, his cavalry that, that broke everyone, every, every army from um, you know, elephants in India to the, 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 the warriors of ancient Greece to the, 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 the immortals, the bodyguards of the Persian king. Um, he was the he was the first in the battle, and that was one of the reasons his army loved him, and one of the reasons they followed him further than even the gods of Greece had dared to go in legend. Um, so Alexander leads his army to Afghanistan, and he founds several cities there. Um, the one that Masson becomes obsessed with is called Alexandria beneath the mountains, or sometimes Alexandria of the Caucasus, and. Masson um, arrives in Kabul, and he starts looking for this lost city. He starts trying to figure out, you know, it's all very very well to decide you want to find the lost city, but what do you do after that? Where do you begin? And Masson starts looking at Kabul for it. Masson is doing this in the, early, in the 1800s. And again, I think you've said this already, but when was Alex, Alexander the Great there? So Alexander... Um, was lived in the fourth century BC, so um, he was um, well well over two and a two thousand years um, before Masson. Um, he was born in three fifty six BC, and he died in three twenty three. He um, arrives in Afghanistan in around, um, as far as we know from the dates, around three thirty BC. This is a pretty cold case, then, as they say on the television shows. It is the coldest of cases. Um, he, Masson is looking for a city which vanished off the face of the earth well over a thousand years ago. He's doing it using ancient historians who've never been to Afghanistan and modern historians who have not only never been to Afghanistan, they don't have any sources who've been to Afghanistan. So he quickly realizes that he can't do this the conventional way with with scholarship, with retracing a route which no one ever recorded accurately in the first place. Instead, what he does is he listens to stories. He wanders the bazaars, the markets of Kabul in the winter. He huddles in doorways in the shadows. He talks to people. And gradually, he keeps hearing the same story again and again of hundreds and hundreds of ancient coins and artifacts covered in a writing that no one could read which keep on being found in the soil, in the plains of Bagram, which was then you know, just a farm, farmland with villages about you know, a, day's, a day's ride, two days' ride from Kabul. 
Now, if you're finding ancient coins in the surface of the soil, that means that there could be something much more substantial hidden underneath. Because, of course, you know, as the, move, as the soil moves, small objects like coins keep on getting brought to the surface, while much larger structures would stay buried deep underground. Mm. So in the spring, what Masson does is he hires a very ill-tempered pony for a few rupees, and he head, heads out to Bagram to see if there's any truth to the stories, to see if he can crack his cold case, if you like. And when he arrives in Bagram, it looks like this is going to be a fool's errand. Um, he asks, in village after village, again and again, have you seen any ancient coins? Have you found anything in the soil? And time and again, people say no. There's, there's nothing like that here. We, we haven't found nothing like that. And he's about to give up. He's riding home. And then he hears the stories again. And he's like, okay, well, I will give this one last try. And he rides back and he asks again and again and again. And finally, an old man brings out a single ancient copper coin. That is defaced and possibly ancient. It's covered in a writing that Masson can't understand. But it's like a message from another world. It tells them that the rumors of stories might just be true. So Masson swoons, basically. He, he gives the old man um, almost all the money he can, and immediately everything changes. One by one, the villagers slip away, the people who told him that they had never heard of ancient coins, never had any ancient coins. They go back to their houses, and they bring him sacks of ancient coins mm -hmm. and artifacts, bags and bags and bags of these things. Because as soon as he actually pays, they realize, okay, this isn't just someone who's going to ride into our village and steal our stuff. And Masson walks down, goes back to Kabul with his, his, his just head spinning and his pockets full of the past. He hasn't found a city yet. He's just found some coins. And he can't even read the inscriptions on the coins because one side of them is in ancient Greek and the other side is in a language that Masson can't understand. But he's come closer already. His cold case is starting to crack. He's coming closer to Alexandria, Alexandria beneath the mountains, than anyone has uh, well over a thousand years. I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, why did the people just give him these coins? And, and how is he supporting himself at this time? He is supporting himself precariously, is the answer to that. Um, he tries to pay everyone for coins and artifacts, even if it's just a few small copper coins. And he earns a little money as a doctor, as a, as a healer. He earns a little money um, writing letters for people. Um, he has a few kind of supporters, people, um, members of the Afghan nobility who help him in, in, in what ways they can. But he quickly realizes that he can't do this on his own. He can't find a lost city on his own because you can, you can, you can, you can ride into a village and tell a few stories and, and and get some coins on your own. But if you want to actually conduct excavations, if you want to dig trenches, if you want to move large objects, if you want to kind of do that kind of really big scale archaeological work, then you simply can't do it on your own. So Masson realizes that the only people who are likely to provide the kind of money he needs are the British, the British East India Company. The British East India Company, which currently has a death sentence out on James Lewis, deserter. So 
this is a high-risk gambit. But what he does is he screws up his courage and he writes to one of the officials of the East India Company, a man called Henry Pottinger, who he's heard a lot about, who he thinks will, will, will be interested in his work. And he, um, Masson and Pottinger strike up a correspondence, um, Pottinger having absolutely no idea that his new friend in Kabul is a wanted deserter. Um, and Pottinger sends him a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there. It's not enough for Masson to live in any style. He lives incredibly simply. Um, he sort of lives, lives in this, this quiet life in Kabul. But it's enough for him to gradually one two more at a time, one site at a time, one village at a time, start to uncover the lost history of Afghanistan and start to uncover this part of the past which was completely unknown to Western scholarship at the time. We're talking with Edmund Richardson, who's author of The King's Shadow, the quest for the lost city of Alexandria in uh, the Caucasus or in Afghanistan. As, as they say in the American movies, but uh, time is passing. We, I, I need to uh, ask you to cut to the chase. Does he find the city or does he start digging down and find the city or, or, or what happened there? He finds not just the city, but a whole lost world. He's never quite sure what he's finding because, of course, he's months travel from the nearest library, but he doesn't just find this, the, the site of Alexandria at Bagram. He finds the lost world of Greco-Buddhist Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan at the t- uh, in the first few centuries AD, four or five hundred years after Alexander the Great's expedition, was one of the greatest centers of Buddhist worship in the world. It was um, a place where these rulers who wrote in ancient Greek, who lived in cities founded by Alexandria, um, traded with all corners of the world, traded with Rome, with India, with China, and wrote and founded cities that were these incredible multicultural places, places where there were sites of Buddhist worship, of Greek scholarship, of Indian science and philosophy. Um, And this multicultural world was completely unsuspected by scholarship at the time. 19th century ancient history basically thought everyone stayed in their own little world. So Greeks stayed, stayed, in, stayed with Greek ideas, Persians stayed with Persian ideas, Indians stayed with Indian ideas, and everyone basically stared at each other over these high walls and shouted at each other. What Masson finds is an incredible multicultural world, and the, the most astonishing of its finds kind of sums this up. It's something called the Dimaran Casket. It's a, a little casket made of purest gold. It's about seven or eight centimeters high. It's inset with stones the color of old red wine. And it's about 2,000 years old. It dates from the first century AD. It's the earliest known depiction of the Buddha, the very earliest of all the hundreds of millions of images of the Buddha. This is the earliest. Hmm. And on the casket, the Buddha stands dressed in the flowing robes of a Greek. He's posed contraposto with his one knee bent and his weight on his other leg. It's a pose straight out of ancient ancient Athens or Renaissance Florence. It's the pose of Michelangelo's David. And he's flanked by two Hindu gods, 
Brahma and Indra. So this mm. casket, this earliest known depiction of the Buddha, is a Buddhist item where the Buddha is dressed like a Greek and flanked by Hindu gods. In other words, it's a piece of kaleidoscopic multiculturalism where religions and cultures and ideas intertwine. And mm. this is the world that Masson finds, and this is why his story matters. He shows us that the ancient world wasn't a place of Greeks shouting at Persians and Persians not understanding Greeks. It was a place of cultural contact and cultural fusion where cultures reach out for each other and understand each other. Mm -hmm. And this is Nathan's greatest contribution to our understanding of the past. Now, the, the uh, object you're talking about, the Bimarin golden casket, he found that? Does it still exist? I mean, did the British come and scoop it up and take it to the British Museum or something? So, like most, like the answer to, generally speaking, if the question is, what happened to this object discovered in the 19th century? The answer, I'm afraid, will frequently be the British Museum. And that is what happened here. This was, of course, a time before people realized the importance of preserving the context when you're uncovering archaeological finds or maintaining a connection between the culture in which a place is, uh, an object is discovered and the, the, the site of its, its subsequent um, display. So yes, um, Masson's finds ended up in the archives of the British East India Company. They were hidden away there for decades in the 19th century and they eventually made it to the British Museum. The casket has pride of place in the Hotung Gallery in the British Museum today. Um, it's a gallery which the new director of the museum has said is, is there to tell what he calls the interconnected story of the world. And that's the story which the museum has really dedicated itself to recently. And that's the story which really Masson's discoveries made possible. Now, is what Masson found in Afghanistan, I mean, could if you could get past the Taliban and so forth, could you still visit it? I mean, we've, you know, the United States and others have been involved in a war in Afghanistan for a number of uh, recent years. Is it, in a way, still there? Is what Masson discovered uh, still accessible to somebody who wants to see it? So, background air base, obviously, in many ways, the iconic side of the recent American-led war in Afghanistan, is built, in fact, atop Alexander's lost city. So if you think of like just digging down beneath the current base to pass the kind of the cast-offs and the rubble of the recent American base, and then you get to another layer, which is the old Soviet occupation. And then below that are the ruins of Britain's disastrous occupation of Afghanistan in the 19th century. And then below that, you find Buddhist artifacts and ancient sites. And below that again, Alexander's lost city. So much of this past, much of the story is buried, um, buried beneath the traces of later expeditions into Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. The location here is Bagram, the place, wasn't it, where America had a big um, military base? 
Absolutely. And if you read the memoirs of many soldiers who served um, in the American uh, led force and background, they talk about finding themselves almost in the footsteps of Alexander, thinking about the ways in which their own travels and journeys in Afghanistan retrace the steps at Alexander's expedition. Hmm. Now, I, I mentioned the Taliban. I mean, is there, do they have, the, does the, do the Taliban see this as an important thing or think it's not of any worth or are they, I don't know, going to destroy destroy it or something like that? One of the iconic monuments that Masson saw, he was one of the first Europeans to, to set eyes on it for centuries, but the gigantic Buddhas of Bamiyan. So these are two enormous thousand-year-old statues of the Buddha carved into the cliff face of Bamiyan, sort of many, many stories high, 40, 50 meters high. They're one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And they were dynamited and destroyed um, on the orders of the Taliban around two decades ago before the American um, war in Afghanistan. So this story makes the Taliban uncomfortable because it's a story about how Afghanistan was once a Buddhist nation. It's a story also of how cultures don't exist behind high walls, about how ideologies are always porous how an extremist, absolutist ideology like the Taliban, which insists that it is right and it has always been right, simply don't hold up in the world as it actually is. And so the story of Afghanistan's lost Buddhist history, of its lost ancient Greek history, of how Afghanistan was one of the great centers of ancient Greek learning in the world once upon a time, this has Many traces of this have been destroyed on the orders of the Taliban. Uh, I'm afraid we, we just have maybe enough time to talk about Charles Masson's end. He, he survived all this and went back to England, as I understand it, and lived there a few years before he died, right? What, what, or what about uh, the, the end of his life? He gets his heart broken by Alexander the Great. He's not the first and not the last for this to happen. But just when he thinks he's on the brink of solving many of the mysteries that he had set out to Afghanistan in search of solutions to, his plans and his hopes and dreams are swept away by the British invasion of Afghanistan. Now, this is one of the darkest and one of the most disastrous episodes in British imperial history. Before this, Afghans were incredibly warm and welcoming to Western travelers, to British and American travelers. Uh, Charles Masson himself was able to wander the, the roads of Afghanistan on his own, um, penniless, and be received hospitably pretty much wherever he went. But after this, the doors are closed. The life of travel and discovery that he hopes for is out of reach. Masson makes his way back, sadly, to London. He tries to tell the story of his adventures and his discoveries, but he finds that this is a story which people in Britain simply don't want to hear. And he lives a quite sad, shadowy life on the outskirts of London. He has a family. He haunts the reading room of the British Museum. He is denied access to his discoveries by the East India Company. And he spends 
a lot of the rest of his life hoping and dreaming and scheming and trying to find a way back to Afghanistan. He never succeeds. Mm. He dies and he's buried in an unmarked grave in a church yard in North London. Um, his finds stayed in the archives of the East India Company for decades and really it's only in the last years, the last few decades, that people have started to realize just how astonishing his discoveries are and just how remarkable many of his insights have been. Edmund Richardson is author of The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria, uh, Alexandria of the Caucasus in what is today Afghanistan. I thank Edmund Richardson for joining us. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.